Father, first, those who are not able to make it here, I pray that you'd heal them up. Uh, those who are sick, those who are infirmed, I pray that you would restore their health. I, I pray that they would be able to rise up even today, this hour, and be able to say, wow, I'm, I'm over this, all because of your grace. But we know we live in a fallen world, and we know that this COVID is going to be with us for probably the rest of our lives. And we would ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom uh, concerning our health, what we should do, how she, we should treat ourselves, and how we should treat illness. And also help us to be in prayer constantly for those who have family, loved ones, who have succumbed to this deadly virus. We would ask, Lord, that you would have mercy on us. And we know that your hand of protection could be removed from us, but we pray for your mercy, that you would look kindly upon us and bless us, not according to the bad things we have done, but just because of your goodness, Lord. We know that you take care of us. And also, Lord, as we get into your word, we ask that you would bless it. Pray that you would multiply it in our minds. Help us to chew it over. Help us to meditate upon it. And may it bring us life and peace in Jesus' name. Amen. There are four major worldviews which are out there. There is the Christian or the biblical worldview that is based on the Bible. There is the postmodern worldview. That's where we create our own reality. God is ignored. There is really no absolute truth. Of course, if somebody says there's no absolute truth, you take the question to them and you say, is that an absolute truth? That there is no absolute truth? And you can see the ridiculousness of that argument. But then there's the Buddhist and the Hinduistic or the New Age worldview. That's where all roads lead to God. It's that there is a spiritual world out there and there can be things like bad spirits and good spirits. If you go to Cambodia, Vietnam, some of the Asian countries over there, they will have those little houses where the spirits of the family members are residing there and they give offerings and incense and money and food and tea and they place that on the little house there because they don't want the bad juju coming in and, and wreaking havoc, havoc in their lives. So there is that worldview. And then there's the atheistic, materialistic, or humanistic worldview. There's those four worldviews which are out there. And we all fall under at least one of them. But the problem is sometimes we fall under a couple of them. Now, some people have a tendency in the Western world to mix these worldviews. There's a story I heard this last week of a Catholic girl who had this friend, and this friend owned a snake. And so the Catholic girl said, by you owning a snake, you were under a curse. And the girl, the Christian girl said, what do you mean I'm under a curse? And this girl referred, this Catholic girl referred back to the book of Genesis that the serpent or the snake was in the garden and he was cursed and he's on his belly for... Uh, the rest of his days, the rest of his existence. And that curse is on the snake. And if you own a snake, the curse is on you. Therefore, you are cursed. That's mysticism. That's Buddhism. That's spiritism. That's superstition is what that is. And so that's somebody who is Catholic, which would be a biblical worldview, Lord willing, except when it comes to salvation. I think that they do great damage when it comes to salvation and the uh, the observance of praying to the saints and all of that, I have some issues with that. But they do teach the fundamentals of the faith. They just add a little bit to it. Well, that's the 
biblical worldview being mixed with spiritism. Those two are going together. And we do this quite often. I also had an aunt. An aunt was raised in Baptist church, sometimes Oral Roberts type teaching, um, sometimes a little more charismatic. But she also believed in reincarnation. And that's the Hinduistic worldview being mixed with the biblical worldview, putting those two together. And we do this quite often, and Paul is making the case against mixing what the Bible teaches and what the philosophy of the world teaches. This is a battle that has been raging basically forever. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you have Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve, and of course they brought their sacrifices, and when Abel went before the Lord and he offered his sacrifice, it was acceptable to the Lord. When Cain went before the Lord and he offered his sacrifice, the Lord rejected his sacrifice. And because of that, uh, King James says that Cain was wroth, R-W-R-O-T-H, and that his countenance dropped. And some people try to figure out, well, why wasn't his sacrifice accepted? And some people say, well, Abel offered a blood sacrifice and Cain did not. Well, we know in the book of the law that you were able to offer uh, grain and, and fruit and, you know, the products of the field, you're able to offer those in sacrifice. So I don't know that I hold to that. And it could be that he probably didn't offer it in faith. It's something of the heart. It's not the actual sacrifice. It's what was in his heart. Those two things really don't matter to me. I just know that God rejected it and that Cain was wrong, especially with what he did. He could have repented, but he didn't. He got angry and he went out and he killed Abel because of it. Now, what is underlying all of that? Cain wanted to offer a sacrifice the way that he wanted to and not the way that God prescribed. God prescribes in Scripture how we're to worship him. You go to Psalm 145 through the rest of the book of Psalms and you see how we're to praise him. We're to sing. We're to praise verbally. We're to play musical instruments. We're, we're to bring sacrifice, sacrifice of ourselves. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Romans tra- chapter 12 verse 1. All of these things. God prescribes how we're to worship him. We are not to offer our children in sacrifice as they did in the Old Testament. That is prohibited. That is detestable to God. That is an abomination. So God says, this is how you are supposed to worship. Now, excuse me. We know that Cain did this and he did it or he wanted to do it his own way. And God said, no. You're not going, this is not acceptable for you to do this. And then later on in the book of Genesis, you have Jacob. Remember Jacob? Jacob had two wives. Remember their names? The first wife was Leah, which he was deceived in receiving. Uh, Probably got, Laban probably got him a little inebriated, set him in a tent that was completely dark, said, this is your wife. And he thought it was Rachel. And surprise, it's Leah. And, you know, what a shock that would be. And then he had to work a total of 14 years to be with Rachel, his wife, that he really loved. Now, Rachel only had two children. And, of course, the handmaidens, uh, 
their um, attendants. They had a few, and then you had Leah, who had several uh, sons as well, and you had the 12 tribes of Israel. But remember when there was Jacob, and Jacob worked for Laban, and Laban was a, just a sneaky, conniving, lying thief is what he was. And he tried to take advantage of Jacob and use him to build his own wealth. And, of course, God was with Jacob, and it turned around just the opposite. And Jacob said, you know, your, your father and his attitude towards me is not what it used to be, and so we're out of here. We're, we're getting out of here. And so there was a three-day distance between the two. He started leaving with his family, with his wife, uh, wives and his uh, concubines, and they all took off. And then Laban catches up to him, and God talks to Laban and says, Laban, you better not touch him or say anything good or bad to him this is the way it's going to be and Laban goes okay you know and so he meets up with Jacob and when he's there Laban has a few things to say you've taken everything you've taken my wealth you've taken my children these are my children you've taken them and then Jacob rebutted and said you have tried to mess me up and take away my wages you've changed them 10 times and so they went back and forth a little bit you could see the hands flying like this if you're in the distance and they're talking like that having a disagreement and when all that's said and done he goes I got a final thing you took my household gods and Jacob said I did no such thing he goes search everybody and whoever took them will die is what he said so Laban searched everything got to Rachel when Rachel was sitting on the I think it was a saddle he said uh, you know I want to check and Basic, and I'm adding Bill's version to this. But he said, I, I want to check, see, I want to search your stuff. And she goes, forgive me, Father, but, you know, it's that time of the month. I can't get up. And so he said, okay. Well, she was hiding the household gods underneath her. What is Rachel doing with idols underneath her when her husband Jacob is a worship? He is Israel. He is the one who worships Yahweh, the great I am. That's the one that he worships. And that here's Rachel. What is Rachel doing? Rachel wanted to mix idolatry with the worship of Yahweh. That's what she wanted to do. She wanted to do it her own way. She said, this is the way to do it in my mind, and I know my husband doesn't approve, but she wanted to mix the world's philosophies, the world's religions, the world's ways with her own or with God's ways and said, this is the hybrid. Now, we do this constantly. Well, let's go a little bit farther into the Bible. This guy named Samson. I've told you before, I just watched a little strongman contest and this guy, 27-year-old guy, he, and he was just, he was so big, if you put a post-it on his back, he couldn't reach it. You know, he'd, he'd probably go like this and wouldn't be able to reach it. He was so pumped. He had so many muscles on him. And it was a strongman contest, and there's this train, and this train would pull into this depot, and they had this device that the train sat on. It was a track. And the track, you could move the track and turn the train around. It didn't have room to turn around, so you'd put the train, the engine on there, and you would turn it around. Well, this guy, he gets up there, and they have this rod sticking off there, about a four, six-inch rod, and he just starts pushing this thing. And he turns the whole train just... The guy was stacked. He was, I wouldn't want to run into him in a dark alley. And if he was a mean guy, I'd be dead. You know, that, that type of guy. And you think of Samson. Well, that was Samson. I've told you before, I, I don't think so. I think Samson was probably 
five foot, five foot five, maybe five foot four, just a little guy. They had long hair. Now, get this in your mind. This is my view of it. That God uses the foolish things of the world to the confound the wise. And if Samson was a little guy, he doesn't get the glory for all of his strength. God gets the glory, right? And so he was, I think, my opinion, he was probably a little guy with long hair. That's what he did. But Samson was a judge in Israel. And he messed up. He had a vow of a Nazarite, right? Wasn't supposed to cut his hair, wasn't supposed to touch anything unclean, wasn't supposed to drink of the fruit of the vine. <clears throat> All of these things were the requirements of taking the vow of Nazarite. Well, you know, this marriage supper where he had a riddle and uh, that he went to is getting married and he proposed the riddle to the Philistines and God wanted to use Samson to judge the Philistines and so Samson gave him a riddle. Well, his wife just pestered him and the Philistines told his wife that if you don't find out what this is about, we're going to kill your family. And so she tried to get the information from Samson. Finally, he got it. And he, he, he had, it was like a bet. And he had to give them garments of clothing after that. And he was mad after that. Well, at a wedding feast like that, it's basically, if you go back into the history and you see what they did at these wedding parties they're basically drinking festivals is what they were <laughs> and for several days for like a week for a week you're inebriated so he he's probably sauced a little bit well we don't know specifically that he was drinking but that's what everybody did when they had these wedding feasts like that so maybe he had that but even worse if you remember he was hungry once and he had killed a lion and after he killed the lion, he came back when he was hungry and he saw that there was a beehive in there and he reached into the carcass and he pulled out the beehive while he's touching something unclean and he's eating something that is unclean from there. And he gave it to his parents and he enticed them into sin because they weren't supposed to have anything unclean like that for uh, the Jews. And, and he just broke that. He, he didn't do what he was supposed to. And he was marrying pagan women, you know, hanging out with the pagans that were there and it's like, man, you're just blowing it. And of course, we know his fate, but what he wanted to do, he wanted to do it his way. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. And God says, no, this is a vow of a Nazarite. This is what you're supposed to do. This is how you worship Yahweh, the great I am. And he goes, nah, not so much. I don't want to do that. I want to eat the honey and the carcass. I want to marry the foreign woman. I maybe want to drink the, the wine that's there. So he was doing everything he wasn't supposed to do, and he was comfortable with that. This is the way it's going to be. God, and what happened to him? Of course, we know that he lost his life. So he was another one that just wanted to incorporate that. There's so many other examples in Scripture. What about when the Jews came out and over to Saudi Arabia, where they went, they made this golden calf. Of course, Aaron said, we threw the earrings into the fire, and out popped this image of this bull that was at this calf, and, and he was... Total lying is what he was doing. But they engaged in revelry, partying, drinking, that type of thing, and worshiping this calf. And they could mix that with a little bit of Yahweh. That would be fine. And, of course, Moses, you know, he broke the tablets. They wanted to have both things involved. You go through Scripture, it's like that all the way through Scripture. Solomon, he did that. He married the foreign wives, and then they were offering their children to Molech. <clears throat> Just over and over and over. And God judged the nation of Israel over and over and over 
over because he said, no, this is how you're supposed to worship. They were taking the philosophies of the world, mixing them in with the worship of God and saying, this is going to be okay. And God says, no. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Now, there are those who hold the biblical worldview. And like I said, we also have a tendency to mix up or adulterate our beliefs. For instance, have you ever attended a church where you were expected to act in particular ways that are never spelled out in Scripture, do particular things. For example, wear a suit and tie or a dress. That's just for the men. For the women, you know, attendance at every service or Bible study that is given during the week, and the men as well, and never, never have a cigarette, an alcoholic drink, or go to a dance. Uh, never go to a movie. Never watch a movie. You know, Pastor Chuck Smith, <clears throat> he had that in his household. Never go to a movie. And then <clears throat> the household that he was growing up in. And another one, I know somebody just not irate, but just was very firm. Never, ever buy a lottery ticket. You can buy 10 Big Macs and eat all those, but you cannot buy a lottery ticket. You know, you can go to Mary's Donuts and pack up a dozen donuts and eat all of those, but lottery ticket is off limits. You know, these things are not spelled out in Scripture, and we're supposed to allow people to have freedom in these areas that we think are maybe a little bit, um, let's say, up for grab, gray areas that are there. And we have a tendency to impose on others beliefs or practices that are not in scripture jehovah witnesses are great at this i was listening to a message uh, by some ex jehovah witnesses and they talked about how they were expected on monday to prepare for the meeting on tuesday and on wednesday prepare for the meeting on thursday and then for the weekend you know, the, when they got together, they're to prepare for that as well. And so they were just kept busy all the time. They're discouraged from any type of academic pursuit. They didn't want people going to college. They, they imposed that on them. We just want the simple scripture. I've heard them say that to me. Just read it simply. Simply what it says in scripture. And we, we don't have to get all highfalutin intellectual on everybody. And, and they impose these things. And they require them to have so many hours of witnessing. And you have to go out to do that. And if you don't go out to do that then you're actually falling behind and you know we'll pray for you that you can do better or the mormons if you're not tithing you need to tithe a little more i don't believe that the tithe is even new testament i believe giving is in the new testament tithe was the old testament so we impose these things on people even though we have the biblical worldview you can't do this you can't do that and you have to do this and you have to do that so i i can Or how about this one? I can live however I want to and God will forgive me. That's also one. I've seen that over and over in the church. Couples that are living together, I eventually talked to them or the elders would talk to them in the past. And they said, we can do this. God will forgive me. You know, I um, saw this example. And this deals with marijuana. I saw this example of a man who had a severe case of Parkinson's disease. I mean, just really, really bad. And the video was on him the whole time. And they ended up giving him a drop of THC. 
which is the active ingredient in the pot. His symptoms went away. It was just amazing to see this. The shakings that he had went away. He, he would often turn his neck to the side and he couldn't look at something directly and it actually helped him. When it comes to stuff like that, that's true medicinal. I get it. Is there something else that could probably work with that? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But when I see that, I'm not so disagreeable. But the person who comes up and says, I can smoke pot. God created the herbs of the field and everything he created was good. And therefore, I can participate in taking this daily basis. It's okay. And if it's wrong, God will forgive me. That is not true. Or living together, you know, a heterosexual couple who moves in together because they love each other. Both of these views are corrupt. And it corrupts God's definition of what love is. Or both views corrupt the idea of who God is. We get an image of our, in our minds of who God is and we create God in our own image. This is what I think God should be. And we create him in our minds. And we communicate that to others and we say, this is who he is. When yet scripture says, I, no, I don't think so. That is not who God is. And we'll leave out, and I say this as a church universal. Not everybody does this, but it is prevalent inside the church. Where we say, well, God is love, but we forget to say God is just. We forget about the justice of God. And, and God doesn't forgive everybody. But he is willing to forgive anybody. But there are conditions behind that. You have to recognize your sin. You have to repent and say, the way I was going was wrong. I need to turn the other way. It is a mental um, aptitude test that you're able to say, yeah, I'm a sinner. I need to change my sin and turn around. And many in the church will say, no, it, it's okay. I, I was communicating with somebody and they said, there's even a Calvary Chapel that said, really, basically all roads lead to God. And they were teaching the kids, instead of praying, they were teaching them breathing techniques to calm down. And that's something of the world, breathing techniques in Sunday school. That's um, maybe for a psychologist or someone like that or somebody who deals with anxiety, I get it. But we have a tendency to take the philosophy of the world and pour it into the church or pour it into our hearts and say, this is okay. Now, Paul is battling against the incorporation into our lives of other worldviews other than Christian or the biblical worldview. I talked last week about the Epicureans and the Stoics and how they were focusing on pleasure and philosophy and order and putting all those things together, depending on which one you held to. And Paul spoke against that. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So again, Paul was battling against the Epicureans and the Stoics and their philosophy, but he was also battling against the Judaizers who attempt to incorporate the, relation, or the regulations in the law and Christian worship. They wanted to put those two things together. They said you had to be circumcised, and if you're not circumcised, well, then you're not submitting to God properly. And we, of course, we know, especially as we get to it here in verse 11, 
that it wasn't the circumcision of the flesh that God was interested in. I'll read it here, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. So he's saying that circumcision in the Old Testament, it was specifically for the Jews. It wasn't for the Christians. It was a sign of the covenant for the males to be circumcised in the Old Testament. But that changed in the New Testament, and God said it's more of a spiritual thing. It's the heart of flesh. It's the sinful nature. It's the removing of the flesh. It's metaphorical. Removing of the flesh that is over the heart so that you might be able to do or resist what the world has to offer. The same type of thing. That's what physical circumcision was for, was to reduce the desire uh, for illicit sexual relationships and, and you get to the New Testament, God says, well, I want to reduce the desire for the sinful nature. That's what he's talking about there. Uh, so it represents the curtailing, not the desires of the flesh, but the desires of the fleshly nature. And when we have the new nature given to us, we are born again. We want to do what pleases God. Prior to that, we cannot please God. And God says, you know, the, the ways of the world, the condition you're in, you do not seek after God. You don't want him. You're hostile uh, to God. So we want to make sure that we understand like Romans 8, 6, it says the mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So the person who is mixing the ways of the world, the philosophy, the Stoics, the Epicureans, the Judaizers, putting all that into their Christianity, they are hostile to God. And when we don't submit to the Spirit of God, we will have a default setting to go to the flesh and say, this is what I think God wants. This is what I think God desires from us. And it is completely skewed from what Scripture says. That's why it's important to be in the Word. So Paul fought this battle in Romans chapter 7 himself. If you recall, the end of the chapter there, he says, the things I want to do are not the things that I do, but the things I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. So he was constantly battling himself to do what was right. And he said, I buffet my body, which imagine a boxer uh, slamming himself in the face to get it done. But he's doing that in a spiritual sense. He's slamming himself to get himself to conform to the new nature, the born again nature, rather than the born of the flesh nature. And so going on from here, he says, we are also baptized in him. Now, verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. The water baptism only symbolizes what happened to us in reality, that we are, Romans chapter 6 talks about this, that we are baptized with Christ into his death, that we are in Christ. We experience death of the flesh, so to speak, metaphorically and then we are revived we are resurrected we are given life we become born again that's what the baptism symbolizes it's not the removal of dirt from the body first peter chapter 3 verse 21 but it's a pledge of a good conscience towards god it's like you're saying okay god i recognize i need to repent i recognize i have the sin i recognize i need to turn to you i recognize i need to die to self so i get baptized that that shows what has happened internally Now, with that, we have accusations. We have have been arraigned as the human race, if you know anything about judicial proceedings. When you are arrested and then you are brought forth before the judge, 
the charges are read against you, you are allowed to offer a plea. That whole process is called the arraignment. We have been arraigned. We haven't been judged yet, but we have been arraigned, the entire human race. We have been called guilty. We have been accused. And so there's going to be a trial, great white throne judgment. That's where the wicked dead will be judged and they'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's when that's going to take place. But until then, we're simply arraigned. God has said the world is guilty of sin. Now, I've been not arraigned before, but I have been thrown in jail. That might shock you a little bit, but uh, I was not always a believer. And uh, before that, I was thrown in jail in a foreign country. Now, that foreign country was Mexico. And being down in Mexico, I, I was 17 years old, and my hair was just as blonde as it could be. There was not a dark root in it whatsoever. And I was with three other completely blonde young men three of us were 17 the other was 18 the guy who was driving and we couldn't have been more inconspicuous in driving a bright orange vw with four surfboards on top going through the town of rosarito and as we're going through that town i've told this story in years past but maybe you haven't heard it so bear with me if you have But as we're driving through the town of Rosarito, and by the way, my parents told me never go down to Mexico. As we're driving through the town, I see the local police car coming towards us. I turned to, the guy's name was Gary, who was driving the 18-year-old. I turned to him and I said, slow down to about 15 miles an hour. And he promptly did. We're doing 15 miles an hour. That police car drives by heading north he looks at us we look at him he turns on his lights whips around pulls us over and he says you were speeding of course 17 18 year olds are this is no way right he goes follow me we were taken to the local police station which was a half mile down the road They took our belts. They held machine guns on us for speeding, which we weren't even speeding. They threw us in a holding cell, room for two to stand, room for two to sit, urine all over the floor. Oh, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. When we got in there, we had to go to the bathroom, all of us. All of us held it for six hours. Whoa, just pain it was so painful we were there for six hours the guy comes in and says uh, you know maybe we found something in your car oh really what'd you find oh you know some marijuana seeds i can neither deny or affirm that that was done but that's what they said and so he goes this is a very serious charge uh do you have any money uh i was the only one that brought money twenty dollars I stuffed it in my sock, in my shoe. I told the guys, don't tell them. We'll get out of here. The rest of the guys, they had like $1.69 between them. One guy blurts out, he has $20. (laughs) Do you have any watches? I just got in a, this is right after Christmas. I just got in a brand new watch for Christmas. I covered it up. I had the ski sweater on, you know, I just covered it up. They didn't see that. But they took the $20 and they let us go. It was extortion is what it was. 
I just wanted to go home. They go, okay, let's go surfing now. So we went down, we went surfing, and then we came back, and I immediately confessed to my parents, guess what? I was in jail. They go, what? And I told them the story. They go, serves you right, you know, is what they said. But we were unofficially arraigned. We had broken the law, quote, broken the law. We were in there. And we could have, he threatened us, you could go to prison. And I heard stories about the prison up in Tijuana. It's not going to be good for us. And so we were kind of frightened, kind of not, especially after we got out. You know, what are they going to do to us? We don't have any more money or any money uh, with us. And so we're just going to go ahead and go serving. And those were fake charges. But with us, we have real charges against us. We have been brought before, again, in a metaphorical sense, God. And God says, guilty. And this is actually going to happen where I said at the great white throne judgment, this will happen where people are determined to be guilty and they will be incarcerated forever. Now, as human beings, and, and we were thinking about when I was in jail down there, we were thinking about who we could call, who, who we could get on the phone to. and Do we know anybody down in Mexico that could intercede for us? And we didn't at that point. And they wouldn't let us make a phone call anyhow. You know, so... Who are we going to get to intercede for us? We needed somebody who was a good attorney that was in with the Mexican government and the judicial system. We didn't have that. But Jesus is our attorney. He is our advocate. We are all guilty. Jesus comes up and says, excuse me, judge, the father, uh, excuse me, daddy. I I want to intercede for these guys over there because he called his father Abba, which is an endearing term like daddy and he is the one that shows up at the arraignment and says it's okay uh, this fine has been paid and you've heard this analogy before Jesus paid the price for us to get us out of the charges at our arraignment so that we might be able to be free and this is what happens in verse 14 having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And so not only did he remove our sin, but he took the law, nailed it to the cross and said, no, that's done away with. It has been fulfilled it's okay. And scripture does say that the word of God will never pass away. And that is true. But when it comes to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament and the indictments against us, that has been done away with that particular portion of the law. There is no law against us whatsoever anymore. So Jesus interceded for us and will always be able to remind the father of his intercession. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25, it says, now there have been Many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The Living Bible says since he will live forever, he will always be there to remind God that he has paid for their sins with his blood. So not that there would be any question in the mind of the father, but we're getting the idea he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood will never end. And we are going to be priests 
underneath him in this world when it comes to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, because Paul did not want to have believers mix up their philosophies of the world and the religious practices of the Old Testament law, he gave this encouragement in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And so this, these Judaizers wanted to bring in the legalism, the dietary laws, the religious festivals, have everybody practice those things as well as confess Christ as Lord. And all of the things that the Jews had to follow and celebrate, oh, it's just going, you had the fall feast and you had the, the spring feast, you had the feast of Passover, the feast of unleavened bread, the feast of Pentecost or first fruits, you had, uh, uh, excuse me, the feast of trumpets, you had the day of atonement, you had the feast of tabernacles, also um, the feast of dedication or lights or Hanukkah, Jesus would have practiced or celebrated Hanukkah, you have the feast of Purim, you have the new moon, you have the Sabbath day, every new moon is the first day of the month for all the Jews, when you know the new moon is like it's a dark circle and you're just barely seeing the crest of light coming over the side and then you have the full moon the full moon is in the middle of the month and so the first day for the jews of every month in the jewish calendar is when there is a new moon so they could look up and say oh it's the first day of the month they didn't have to worry about which month it was they could always see the moon we don't have that in our calendar our new moon and our full moons they move through the months now <clears throat> when it comes to following this stuff in the old testament Christ, you know, he, he gives us, God gives us the Ten Commandments, and we're supposed to hold to those the best that we can. But we know that those were given to the Jews, but like the, the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day is Saturday. We don't worship on Saturday, we worship on Sunday. Jesus is our Sabbath day's rest. And that's what it points to. All the other commandments are repeated in the New Testament, and we should follow them. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, commit murder. All of those things have no other gods, no idols, do not take God's name in vain, honor your mother and father. All of those things we are supposed to follow. But imagine the Jews coming along and saying, you have to follow all of these different feasts and festivals. You have to participate in there. Or there's this idea of asceticism, attempting to gain righteousness through the rigorous life and self-denial and meditation, where you starve yourself half to death. You beat yourself on the back like Martin Luther and whip yourself. Or fasting. Fasting doesn't make you more spiritual. It just shows that you're sacrificing for God and you're not broadcasting it anywhere. And we're also not saved by works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And then there's the mysticism or the attempting to communicate through a translate contemplation, deep meditation. You're trying to get in touch with the spiritual world. There was that going on back then too, just like today. Or teaching people to rely on their feelings and their intuitions. You know, the, Jeremiah says our heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? You, you just give yourself a little free reign in your heart, and what happens? You immediately go to an area of sin. This is what I want. This is what I desire. And God says, no, take every thought captive. Realize what you're thinking about. Or how about this one? New revelations from God. We got a new revelation. Really? I thought Scripture in four different places, it says, do not add or take away from my word. 
That's all the revelation that we need. And if you do, there's going to be curses come upon you. Or the person that says, there's a new experience. We, we've experienced something new from God. No, there's nothing new under the sun. God has, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he has spelled out for us how we're to worship him and what we're to expect. Or if somebody performs a great miracle that takes place and you go, oh, whoa, what's that? God said, beware of those people who perform miracles. And so we're to be wary of all of these things, the new revelations, the feelings, the intuition, the experience, the mysticism, or uh, there are people with uh, uh, false humility that walk around and you, you think, oh, they're so godly, they're so spiritual, they're so humble, and they are just sheeps. Of sheep's wolves in sheep's clothing is who they are. Uh, they make themselves appear more holy than they actually are, and that's because of pride. That's what's at the root of that. And, and then there are those who worship angels. Um, and specifically, if you do that, you're worshiping Satan. In verse 19, he says, that type of person, he has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And so he's saying, if you avoid these things and you stick to the word, you will grow. If you do not mix in the world's philosophies, if you do not take in Judaism and put that in with your spiritual experience, you will grow. And, and spiritual growth can only take place when you're united with Christ. It cannot take place apart from the body of Christ. You have to be in the body. The person who is not in fellowship will not grow. The person who is not in the word will not grow. The person who does not seek after Jesus will not grow. The person who doesn't study the word will not grow. The person who does none of these things will not produce fruit. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to produce fruit. He wants us to be that heavy laden bush. Right now, the citrus, I don't know if you have a citrus tree. But the citrus are just hanging because there's so much fruit on the citrus trees. I've seen lemons and tangerines and grapefruit. They're just hanging there. The fruit is just being produced by these things. It's a time of year. And also the citrus are blooming right now. So the fruit is getting ready to be pulled and they're blooming. That's what we're supposed to do. Abide in Christ. And of course, that's John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. You abide in Christ, you will grow. What's abiding in Christ? Doing all the things I just listed. The fellowship, being in the word, seeking after Jesus. Uh, The person who does study. That person grows. The person who forsakes even one of those They're stunting their growth. It's kind of like the citrus that are out there right now. If you don't fertilize the citrus, it's not going to produce as much fruit. If you do fertilize the citrus, it will produce a lot of fruit. But right now, there are no stone fruits which are out there. Because the stone fruits, those trees, like peaches and plums and that type of fruit... Those trees are deciduous. They don't have their leaves right now, but they will come out in spring with the flowers and they'll produce fruit in the summer. Right now, we have the citrus. And there are times where you don't produce the fruit. Maybe you've dropped all your leaves and you're just hanging out. It's kind of a cold season. You're in a desert, so to speak. But come come fellowship, the water, the sun, God is light. The water is referred to or uh, synonymous with the spirit. Put those two, two things together. You bloom and you produce fruit as long as you abide in Christ. If you don't abide in Christ, no fruit. You get the idea. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This is the asceticism. Thinking that if you deny yourself a bunch of stuff, you'll be more spiritual. 
These are all destined to perish with the use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. And so this, this idea that we can treat ourselves badly and think God is blessed because of that and we're more spiritual, he goes, no. It doesn't work that way. To think that we can adopt the ways of the world, incorporate them into the church, and that we're going to be better off, more spiritual, no, it doesn't work that way. <clears throat> that way. To think if we just <clears throat> practice certain things more often, it's like some of the festivals in the Old Testament, or if we get circumcised or baptized in a particular way, the Church of Christ says, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptized in water, that's when you receive the Holy Spirit. I just talked to somebody about this last week. They said, how do I talk to somebody in the church of Christ? And I said, oh, yeah, they believe you have to be water baptized in order to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and be born again at that same time. He said, that's not the case. Go to uh, book of Acts, chapter 10 and 11, Cornelius. He received the baptism of the Holy Spirit before he was ever water baptized. And I said, use that one with them. It's not a logical linear order like that, like they're teaching <clears throat> that you can't be born again unless you're water baptized and repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. They miscommunicate, they misinterpret what the scripture has to say. And so with all of this, Paul is waging a war. <clears throat> He's trying to tell the people in the church of Colossae, look, stay away from the world's philosophies. Stay away from the teaching of the Epicureans and the Stoics and the Judaizers. Don't think that if you treat your body poorly, you're going to be more spiritual. You're not. Matter of fact, God is going to say, I'm going to treat your body so poorly, it's going to die. And when it dies, I'm going to remove that body from you and give you a new one. I have to start over is what God's telling us. And we want to try to perfect ourselves by what we do and what we believe apart from God's word. God says, no, don't do it. Don't mix that stuff. Now, in closing here, mixing the ways of the world with the ways of God, taking the wisdom of the world and trying to mix it with the wisdom of God, they are opposed to each other. If you go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians talks about that, how the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God and how the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. Let me tell you this. Let me give you an example of mixing something. There was a guy by the name of John Pemberton. Maybe you know him. Maybe you don't. He's from Atlanta, Georgia. And in 1885, he made something. In 1885, he was a pharmacist. A pharmacist named John Pemberton. He took the extract from a plant from a leaf and he mixed it with other ingredients like caramel and water and produced what we know as Coca-Cola. <clears throat> now, Coca is short for cocaine. The cola comes from the cola nut, which contains caffeine and other stimulants. And his first batch, what he produced in 1885, contained cocaine and caffeine he put those together in what we know as coca-cola today now coca-cola today does not have cocaine it, it does have caffeine but it doesn't have cocaine now when he described this drink this is how he described it he said it is a brain tonic and an intellectual beverage why because it's a stimulant <clears throat> your mind just starts going wild after a while 
And they thought, he thought, everybody thought at that time, since cocaine was not illegal, it was a stimulant, a stimulant it was good for you. And if you took it in low doses, you know, it's great. You drink it, you go, oh, I feel great. I want some more Coca-Cola. By the way, during the prohibition, guess what drink soared to the top of the charts? Coca-Cola did because it had the cocaine in it and made people just feel wonderful. Now, he also claimed that it cured headaches and upset stomach and fatigue. He didn't have to do any testing on this. And so instead of the alcohol, like I said, during the prohibition, they went for this and they all felt well. This is like mixing the worldviews and philosophies with Christianity. It's like putting cocaine into the drink. Now, what's wrong with cocaine? Well, it can leave you feeling energetic, happy, and focused, but it can also lead to a severe cocaine overdose that can last for an hour or longer, cause seizures, heart attack, and a stroke. That's the similarity between mixing the philosophy and wisdom of the world and the practices of the Judaizers with Christianity. And God says, don't do it for your own benefit. Do not rely on your own wisdom in this. <clears throat> How does that translate to us today? What are we looking at as far as being inside the church that are the world philosophies, the Judaizers and all of that? We are trying to change the church in many sectors. Like, for instance, the church is becoming politically motivated. Now, I'll talk about politics all day long in a moral setting because it's all morality. But there are those who talk about politics all day long and remove the morality. They will talk about poverty, AIDS, imperialism, warmongering, CEO salaries, consumerism, global warming, racism, and the oppression, and not so much focus on abortion and gay marriage. They'll say, you know, let's have a conversation. I've heard this advertisement on the radio uh, lately, past couple weeks, of this organization is trying to get people together with different views morally to have a conversation. God's had the conversation. What we want to do is sinful. What he wants us to do could be wonderful if we just accept it. But we are in the postmodern age. If you hear postmodernism, if you hear progressive evangelicalism, if you hear progressive Christianity, if you hear social justice Christianity, all of those things are the philosophy of the world. If churches start embracing Black Lives Matter, if they start embracing Antifa, if they start <clears throat> blaming particular races like the white race for uh, the racism that is in the world, there's racism in every single race. I just saw a video of a black guy standing behind an Asian man pushing him into the tracks on a platform where a train is coming in. But they're not talking about the black on Asian violence. A guy was just put in the hospital and he died from his injuries from being beat up. Racism is everywhere. It's one of the sins. But if somebody wants to come in and just say, well, this particular race is responsible for racism. No, we're all racist. We're all sinners. We're all going to do what we should not do. And God says, you need to repent you need to have God's view of humanity, that we are all destined for hell. That's what we need to bring. So if somebody wants to get political for political sake, avoid that. 
Say, no, this is wrong. This is what Jesus talked about. This is mixing the philosophy and the wisdom of the world and the Judaizers, their practices, into the church. And I pray that we do not do that. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that you would increase our wisdom as we pay attention to what Paul says, that if there are racists or if there is racism, Lord, may it be put down, may it be squashed, may it be destroyed. If there are those who wish to do evil, I pray for the same and that it would be exposed. I pray, Lord, that righteousness would reign. And may that begin in our hearts. May we be the ones that not only proclaim your truth, but speak about your grace that is given to all who would desire it, your unmerited favor, that we might be saved from this world of sin. And Lord, with all these things, we know that we can't do it without your help. And we pray that you would strengthen us in the faith that has been handed down through the centuries by the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.